Well, good morning, church. Glad to have you here this Memorial Day weekend. And uh, not just uh, folks who will regularly be here on this campus, but I see North Avenue campus family here too with the race weekend taking place. And so uh, good morning to all of you. You know, this is Memorial Day weekend. Before I get to the word, just a couple of statements. Uh, you know, the character of a, a person's character is always strengthened. And the character of a country is always strengthened when either one of those two stops to remember those who have gone before. I've said uh, oftentimes, you've heard me say it from this very, this very place, this very same spot, and that is uh, even for individually as a pastor, I don't sit here on my own. I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me. Um, we stand as a country on those who went before us, those who've given their lives. Memorial Day was put in place not just to be a reason for an extra day vacation and for a, a free weekend or a three-day weekend, but it was meant to set aside a moment where we would actually stop and remember those who paid a price for us. I hope that you will do that. And of course, through the years, we've gone beyond just remembering those who have, who have served in military or given their lives in that way, but we've kind of brought into it as well just stopping to remember those who have gone before us. I hope that you will do that as well and, and uh, make it more than just a weekend barbecue, but uh, actually stop and remember. Your character is strengthened when you realize that what you have has not come by your own doing alone, but has come because someone has gone before you and prepared the way. Your character is strengthened every time you remember that. Now, as we're gathered here today, we all have watched the news this past week, an absolute horror. The, uh, the shooting in Texas and the lives, the innocent lives of children. And there's something about children that gets right to the heart as quickly as anything I can imagine, right? I mean, there's tragedy happens in our world all the time, but it doesn't quite grip us like something like this has. Uh, I was in the grocery store and saw two women talking about it and weeping. Uh, in our own office, just, just talking about the news, would have people in tears throughout this morning in first service, just talking about it. So you, I can't, you can't help but see pictures, see some of the news, and just immediately just go to your heart. And I think something changes if you have children. Uh, my own son said the same thing watching the news and saying it changes everything now that I have a little girl and it all becomes very real to us in just a moment's notice. And I have struggled with, what do you say? This past week as the news broke and my daughter who uh, actually oversees our social media stuff said, I'm gonna, we need to put a statement out. And, and I sat down and said, I don't know what to say except for, oh God, you know, God, please help us. Um, and even knowing this morning uh, I needed to say something, and so let me, let me say a couple of words to you that I hope will be an encouragement. But you know, the truth of it is, there's really not a lot of encouragement in a moment like this. Um, I hate Christians come along and say, well, everything happens for a purpose. Boy, if that's where you're at, just be quiet. Uh, and just better to stay silent. I do get, I do get, and I mean this, that in God's sovereignty, which I don't understand the whole picture, but I get this, God is so big and so powerful. He can take all the decisions made in this world, all the good ones and all the bad ones. He can take all the bad decisions that I make that affect my life and the bad decisions I make that affect yours. He can take all the bad decisions that other people make that affect other people's lives and somehow he has the ability to take those decisions and weave them into some master plan. But in the moment, I don't understand it and I can't see it. 
So I don't try to sell that to the world. I just sit and grieve with them. One of the most encouraging passages of Scripture we talked about last week, Jesus wept. That I think there are these moments in this past week, one of the most encouraging pieces to me is a Heavenly Father who weeps, who weeps in these kind of moments. Friends, I just want to tell you this. I want to encourage you here in this moment. After these moments, all sorts of people will run and will race, whether it be news commentators, politicians, whatever side, will run to assign blame and what's the cause. And then there's going to be, of course, a litany of reports done and verbiage that's going to say what went wrong and how to fix it. And all that's good to be able to look to see what has to be fixed, what we can do better. But you're going to hear all this list of things, whether it's guns or whether it's mental health issues, whether they should have locked the door. You're going to hear all of the things. And the truth of it is, is this. There's evil in this world. Uh, The Bible's clear. There is an evil in this world, and there's an evil one in this world. And the answer to him is the person of Jesus Christ. The greatest encouragement I can give you Weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. That means literally just sit and have your heart break with them. But listen, the hope, and I I don't mean this in any trite way, the hope that this world has is all wrapped up in Jesus and the church doing its job. If you find yourself saying, how can we make a difference? Then just start telling the story of Jesus and start with the person beside you and the neighbor beside you. Start living it out. And I don't mean that any trite way. That's the hope we have. There is evil in this world, and there is a day where evil is going to be reckoned. They're going to stand before God, and God bats last. God gets the final say. But again, in a moment like this, that doesn't really help a family that's grieving over a lost child. And so what we do is we just cry with them, and we say, Lord, we're going to trust you for what it is. However you intercede here, we're going to trust you to intercede. Let me just offer a prayer. Father, I admit to you that we are, we are just left speechless in these moments. So many people will want to run down a road of trying to explain away, and if we just fix that or do this, and the truth of it is it doesn't take away the pain and the hurt and the heartache. There is evil in this world, and we have these demonstrations of it that, that horrify us. And yet, somehow in this moment, I would ask, Lord Jesus, that even in this darkest moment, would you remind us that you are bigger than our darkest moment. You are bigger than the worst that this world can throw at us. And I pray that in this moment, for each of these families that have been directly touched by this tragedy, they've lost children, these people that are just beside themselves, I pray that number one, in some way I can't even begin to, to describe, I pray that they would somehow sense your presence. I pray that somehow you would send into their lives, if they are not there already, send people into their lives who will just sit and grieve with them and weep with them. And in doing so, that they would somehow communicate your love to them. Father, we long for the day when evil comes to an end. We long for the day when the evil one will stand before you and will get his. But even as I pray that, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd also find in me a heart that understands that um, I've got my own shortcomings. I've got my own issues. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will do your work of grace in me and then empower me to get out there and carry out the mission of telling the world the story your incredible story.
For these grieving families, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give to them hope and that sense of your presence. These moments make absolutely no sense to us. Your ways are indescribable, and somehow, even in this darkest moment, you are greater than this evil. So I ask that your presence would be felt. I ask that your love would endure and would penetrate the darkness. And I pray that as a response to these moments, your church, your followers, would know what it means to weep with the brokenhearted and to hurt and cry with them, but then also would get about the business of being on mission. Lord Jesus, as we look to your word today, I pray that you'll use your word to begin to open our eyes and our hearts to how you would have us live. We're going to talk about this beautiful thing called the bride of Christ, your church, and I pray that you'll bring to us clarity and understanding as to how it is we came to this place and how we are to live accordingly. We give you this time, and Lord, even before we just get into your word, I I am mindful of this. We grieve and our hearts have been hurt with what has happened in the world in Texas this past week. But I also know that if we zoom in here, we've got people here today whose hearts are broken over other things, things that we don't know, things that haven't made the news, things that haven't made the headlines, whether it's a doctor's report, whether it's a spouse that's walked out, Maybe it's a child that is going through some difficulty, but all through this room, there are people that have battles taking place and struggling inside with some of the realities of life. I pray that in this moment, they would feel your presence as well and that they would know that they can trust you with whatever it is they face. We give this time to you. We ask you to speak to us through your word. All in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're actually going to begin a new series. Before I get to the title of it, let me ask you a question and want you to think about it. And that is this, what do you think of when you hear the word church? What picture comes to your mind? What's your, what's your idea that you have when you hear the word church? Think about that for a moment. Now, of course, we're in church this morning. So for some of you, you'd be going like, duh, Scott, I'm thinking this is what I think of a church. Yeah, I got it. But maybe go a little deeper with me here and just think about what do you think, what's picture, what's the, what is the picture you get when you think of the word church? Now, my guess is that regardless of what you might think of when you hear the word church, my guess is it would be wildly different than what those first century believers would picture in their minds when they heard the word church. Now, by first century believers, I'm talking about those people that came to Jesus, followers of Christ, right at the resurrection, and then immediately after for the first century. And regardless of how, what picture you get, I'm thinking that their picture and our picture will be wildly different wildly different. I mean, think about this. They didn't have any of the other stuff and other trappings, if you will, that we have, that we have to kind of sort out that comes with the word church. If you think about it, those first century followers of Jesus, they didn't have liturgy. They didn't have order of service. They didn't have different worship styles or different worship music. They didn't have the different instruments like we would have. They didn't have traditions that they followed. They had no Bibles, no banners, no bulletins, no bands, no buildings, or any other things that start with B. They had none of those. They had no facilities. They had no church staff. They had no pastoral staff. They had no districts. They had no district superintendents. They had none of those things that we have all wrapped up in this package of church. 
So what do you think of when you think of the word church? It would be drastically different than what they would think of. Now add to the mix, think about this, think about how the world views the church. The world would have yet a different view when they hear the word church. Uh, I became aware of that years ago. I was 27 years old, 26 years old, in fact, uh, just getting ready to turn 27 when I had this idea of marketing the church. And that made sense to me. We talk about we have a message to tell, we have a product, we've got something that we want people to buy into, and why not market the church? I was in Detroit at the time, and so I found the biggest advertising company in the city of Detroit. I called, I got an appointment with the head guy, head advertiser for this company. He was gracious enough uh, when I made my case that I was a poor pastor, poor church, small church, you know, and that he would meet with me one time. Uh, you know, free of charge and see how he could help me. So I had my meeting with him. I went downtown Detroit, went into a high-rise building, went into his uh, well-meticulous office and sat down with him. And he said, so father, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I want to market the church. He said, well, tell me more. So I started telling him about the church. And in fact, I want to advertise. I want to market the church. And he let me talk for quite a while. And he goes, all right, can I tell you something? And I said, sure. And he took his cigar out of his mouth. He wasn't smoking it, just chewing it. So he had it well wet and slobbered up. And he pulled that out and he said, well, Father, you're the Father. He said, but I can tell you right now, no offense, but people hate church. I go, really? He goes, they hate it. It's boring. And he said these words, they only go so they don't go to hell. (laughs) So he said, you got quite a steep mountain to climb here if you're going to market the church because they hate it. I'm thinking I'm 26 years old, 27 years old. This really makes me excited for a a lifetime of ministry ahead of me. (laughs) You know, I'm going to spend a lifetime trying to market something everybody hates and it's boring. So I said, I don't think it's boring. So I went and get my whole pitch. You know why it's not boring? And he goes, just like that, he goes, you're the father, you would know. But I'm telling you, it's boring. So there's one view of the church, boring. You might have many other views of the church. So let's kind of begin and then unpack some things here. So from the very beginning, the church began as a movement. From the very start, it was a movement. It was a movement around a person and around an event. The person, Jesus Christ, the event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the very beginning, it was a movement of people. Now, that event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, galvanized and cemented and fired up these first century followers of Jesus. Now, I, I, can't, I can't overstate that. I mean, you have to understand, they had these followers of Jesus, these people that had believed in Jesus, and now he dies, and all hope is lost. On Friday night, they have nothing. On Saturday, they have nothing. On Sunday, they still have nothing because they don't know what they have yet. And then as Sunday morning unfolds and the days follow, they now realize they've got something they couldn't have imagined, and that is they've got power over death because Jesus Christ is alive. That moment of Easter Sunday morning galvanized them. It cemented it for them. It set them on fire. It was a huge turning point. And off they would go with this incredible story. Now, we've been talking about this in our series in the Gospel of John. We've been talking about the fact that John said, I've seen these things. I write them down because they convinced me, and I want them to convince you. And one of those, one of those moments was the resurrection. It was, a, it was a life-changing moment. It was a game-changer. And those who believed it, those, those first people, uh, those first followers of Christ, 
Those are the people that when you think about church, we got to think, how would they have viewed the church? So our series together is basically this, church, it's more than a building. Because our thought process today, for many, many people, church is a place, it's a location. We're going to talk about that more as we walk through this. In our culture today, most people think building. They think denomination, they think Catholic or Protestant, they think worship style. They think about a lot of different things about the church. But none of those were there at the beginning. None of those things that we have today or think of today were present at that very beginning when all it was was a movement. So today in our series, we're going to use some background time today. Today's our background day, intro day. We got a little history, some things you need to understand. And whether you grew up Catholic, whether you grew up Protestant, whether you never grew up in the church at all other than this church, whatever it might be, today my hope would be that we're going to give you some kind of help in understanding how the church came to be, how it is there's a church, why are we here, and to fill in some gaps of understanding which most people just don't know about the church. But please know, as you've heard me say before, the goal is not to give you information. My goal is not to inform you, though I hope to give you some information. That's not my end goal. My end goal is transformation, not information. So even though we're going to talk about the church and we're going to talk about history today, my, my hope is you'll be informed, but my end goal is that as you begin to understand how the church began, you would begin to grab hold of some emotional attachment to this thing called the movement of Christ. And that will be my hope through our weeks together as we look at the church. So the church started as a movement, and it's still moving. So let's get into the academic part of our day. When you get done here, you are just going to walk out of here brilliant people because of our time together. So let's get into the academic part. So whenever you're reading your Bible, you're going along and you're reading your Bible, and you read the word church, that word church is actually a word that comes, it's a translated word from a Greek word called ekklesia. Greek word ekklesia. Now, don't say it out loud, but let, say it a couple of times because it's kind of fun to have that roll off your tongue. And if you get it a couple of times, you can walk away knowing you now know Greek. Good for you. <laughs> ekklesia. That's the word church. Now, ekklesia uh, literally means an assembly. It means a gathering, the gathering of people. It means a congregation group of people. Now, when God began the church, it was a gathering of people. It was a movement of people, people on mission. Uh, people, people who came together, common thought, common mission, and they were going out with a simple message, a simple story. Now, we're going to look at the very beginning of the church in a couple of moments, but that's the starting place, and we're going to come back to, the, to the, the actual starting of the church in a moment. So the movement started shortly after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the day of Pentecost, about, about 60 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the church begins. Now, something happened along the way to the church. Not good. In fact, horrible. In fact, within 300 years, now 300 years in the scope of time is not very long. About 300 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything goes south for the church. And we'll see it in history. I mean, a a catastrophic moment happened with the church. And when I tell you what it is, you're kind of go, what? That doesn't sound like a catastrophe. That doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but catastrophic. So now the idea of the church shifted In those 300 years, the idea of the church shifted from a movement to a location. Don't forget, first century followers, you ask them for church, they got mission. They got to go, we got a job to do, we got a story to tell. But 300 years later, it had changed drastically. It had moved from a movement to a location. From the story of the resurrection to the story of, well, who's in charge here? 
Very drastic difference. Now, about 300 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the idea of the church had changed, and here's how that change came about. Now, if any of you know history, and if you don't really know history, if you ever watched any of the Robin Hood movies, you will know, whether you know history or not, either one, you'll know that we come to the medieval times and the church was in a bad, bad, bad place. It had really devolved into just a mess, an embarrassing, horrible time for the church. Everything was wrong about the church. That horrible period of time was launched, and if not launched, was at least fed by this shift of thinking. Now, what is the shift of thinking that we're talking about? See, a lot of these problems that happened in the church happened because the movement shifted from movement to location. Now, this word ecclesia, this group of assembly or people in a movement, changed. Now, here's how it changed. A new word came on the scene. It was a German word called Kirsha. Kirsha. Now, listen, when you leave here today, you're going to walk out of here feeling so good about yourself. You've got some Greek, you've got some German, you've got ecclesia, and you've got Kirsha. Now, Kirsha means the Lord's house. Just means the Lord's house. And if you look a little more closely at it, it just means that wherever some group of people happen to meet, that happen to be religious, that's the place. That's the Lord's house, Kirsha. So, subtly what took place is in the translations went from ecclesia, the, the movement of people, the gathering of people, inserted the word kirsha, which means location or place. That translation, that change from movement to place was catastrophic for the church. Created so many problems. See, it goes like this, and I think you'll get this. You see, movement becomes place. Well, when it's becoming a place, a place you have a building, you have a facility. And then if you look in history, you find this thought process. Whoever controls the building controls the church. And whoever controls the building controls the scripture. And whoever controls the building and controls the Bible controls the people. And if you go and look at our worst times in church history, you will find that there was a group of people, a hierarchy, that owned the building and controlled the building, and they controlled access to the Bible. And when you have that, what do you have? You control the people. Not the way it was meant to be. But that sounds like far off. I'll give you some of the problems that happened with that idea, even in modern day thinking. Years ago, I was, had a pastor friend in the area. We would talk regularly. We were good friends. And he had shared with me that he had a guy in his church that was the largest giver in the church. Largest giver. I mean, substantial. Meaning if he stopped his giving, church would be in major trouble. And the church was transitioning from traditional hymns, uh, organ and piano, to instruments and uh, choruses, you know, kind of new, Christian, new, new Christian music. And this guy was dead set against it. And every single week, he was threatening the pastor, if you make this change, you make the, if you don't go back, I'm going to withhold my money. I'm going to withhold my money. And so finally, he calls me one day and says this. He says, Scott, it happened. I go, what happened? He go well, he threatened to withhold his money and to leave the church. And he said if this week wasn't different, he was leaving. And this week wasn't different. So he came and stormed the office on Monday, and he's leaving. He's taking his money. His words were this, I'm going to bankrupt the church. And I'm leaving. I'm going to another church. And so I said, where's he going to go? And he said, he's going to Essex Lions Church. <laughs> And I said, well, he won't last long here. And he lasted about two weeks. And then he went back. And he put his money back in because he realized he couldn't threaten the pastor because the pastor wouldn't give. God bless him. Pastor wouldn't give. 
And so he put his money back in thinking, well, I'm not wor- it's not working by me taking the money out. I'll put it in. Maybe I can buy influence that way. Now you say, well, how does that fit? See, well, that's what happens when you focus on place instead of movement. And it's happened here. See, behind me is a big screen that we use every single Sunday. Behind that screen is a cross. And when we move to using the screen, we put the screen down and it pretty much stays down. And the week that we did that, shortly thereafter, three different families left the church years ago. And they left with these parting words. What kind of a church hides the cross? Became a spiritual thing. We were hiding the cross. Now, just so you know, if you kind of lean that way in your thinking, I have to tell you, you don't understand the church. And I would also say you don't understand things like crosses. Uh, You see, the Bible is really clear about not having idols and things that we worship, worship helpers, if you will. And we have crosses, I mean, we make them great worship helpers. Now, please know you don't hear me ranting and raving against them because nothing wrong with remembering things, but there is something wrong when we begin to worship them and put them at some place of, of predominance. So those are the kind of things that happen when we don't have a good idea of what the church, some really bad thinking, some really bad theology happens along the way that causes the church great pain. Now, the church, back, going back in time now, was in big trouble, and it had been that way for far too long. From 300 AD, I mean, we're in some bad years of the church history, and it goes for quite some time. Let's speed up to the 1500s. 1500s hap- are happening, going along, and a guy shows up in the 1500s named William Tyndale. William Tyndale is from England, and Tyndale is a, lingu- a linguistic scholar. He's a follower of Jesus, and he decided that every average person should have a Bible, should have access to a Bible in English, of course, because he's English. Now, remember a key thing here, and that is in that time, the average person didn't have access to a Bible. They just weren't available, and if they were, they couldn't afford them. And if they could afford them, the given rule of the day was that the only, piece, the only people who were qualified to have or use a Bible were the priests. So even if you had a Bible, you weren't allowed to read the Bible, and you certainly weren't allowed to interpret it. So people didn't have Bibles. Only the priests had the access. And remember, if you controlled the Scriptures, the truth, you controlled the people. Don't forget, go back and look in history. You'll find it to be true. So Tyndale comes along and he says, man, this is wrong. The people need access to God's word for themselves in English and not in Greek, not in Hebrew, not in Latin, but they need to have access to the word because the word changes you. And so I got to get it into their hands. So he set off to translate the Bible into English and to get it into their hands. The church leaders considered him a heretic and outlawed, uh, outlawed him and were going to arrest him and have him killed. But he heard it was coming and he escaped. He went to Germany and there he continued his work. And thanks to a guy named Gutenberg, again, you're going to leave here wise, or well, maybe not wise, smarter. A guy named Gutenberg, if you don't know that name, he's the guy who invented the printing press. And Gutenberg, who invented the printing press in Germany, had now had the printing press going for a number of years. So because of that, Tyndale can translate the Bible, can have it printed, and he's printing it and having it printed, and he's actually smuggling Bibles back into England and getting them into the hands of the people. One of Tyndale's quote-unquote friends turns him in. He's actually arrested, taken back to England, 
He's put on trial, not, not, not a civil trial, if you will, not a legal trial, but he's put on trial by the church leaders. He's found to be guilty of heresy, and he's hanged. They hang him. Now, what has he done? He's translated the Bible into English, and he's put the Bible into people's hands. That's considered heresy, and he's hung. Just before he is hung, here's, one of his fa- here's a famous quote from William Tyndale. He says this to those religious leaders. If God spares my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. You go, well, what does that mean? It means this. If God spares my life, I will keep printing Bibles. And as a result of that, the kid who is out in the field working the plow By the time I get done, he will know more of the Bible for himself than you religious leaders know it. If God allows me to live, they they hung him. Now, here's what's key. When William Tyndale translated the Bible into English, whenever he came to that Greek word ekklesia, he didn't use the word kirsha. This is very different. He doesn't use the Lord's place. He actually uses a translation of the word, the congregation, the assembly. It was his attempt to get back to the church being a growing movement, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, mission-centered movement of people with a very simple message, a message for everyone, a message centered around a person, Jesus Christ, and centered around an event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because it proved that he was who he said he was. And Tyndale was right. The church was meant to be a gathering. It was meant to be a movement of people, a people with a story to tell, not a people settled in with a list of things, a list of songs, a list of priorities, a list of things that they prefer or that made them comfortable, but a movement. Now, in the book of Matthew, we have a moment It's kind of worth touching on here real quickly. In the book of Matthew, we have a moment where Jesus is walking with his disciples. He'd been ministering for some time. They're in an area called Caesarea Philippi, this gorgeous, gorgeous area in the northern part up in in the, uh, the Galilee region. And they're walking along, and he says to his disciples, hey, guys, um, you're out and about. What's the word on the street? Who do the people think I am? And, of course, one of them immediately says, well, some think you're John the Baptist. Come back from the dead. He goes, interesting. Any, any other takers? And a couple of guys jump in as well, and they say, well, there's a lot of people who think that you're one of the Old Testament prophets. You also come back from the dead. And then he says this. He says, but my question I have is to you guys is this, but who do you think I am? I mean, that's who they think I am, but who do you think that I am? Remember Peter? Peter says this. Peter goes, you're the Messiah. You're the one. You are the Son of God, the Savior sent from the Father. That's who you are. And Jesus has a response, and he says in Matthew 16, he says, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. He's the one that gave you the answer. Now look at me. And then right after that, he says this, and Peter, I'm going to build my what? Church. And you. Now, the you isn't you personally. He says, I'm going to build mine. I'm Mrs. Key. I'm going to build my ecclesia, not my kirsha. He doesn't say, I'm going to build my building on a guy like you. He says, I'm going to build my movement on a person like you. 
I'm going to build my movement. Now, there are some that try to say, well, Peter's the first pope, and he meant literally going to build a church him. No, what he's saying is this. I'm going to build my movement on people like you who know from the Father, from the Holy Spirit, who I am, and will tell the story. I'm going to build my church, my movement on you. So we have this beginning moment picture where it's not a building. Again, it's, it's the Spirit of God moving in people. Not long after this, Jesus is killed, he's crucified, and of course, he comes back from the tomb. Now, the Bible tells us that he stayed with his disciples for about 40 days. After the resurrection, he saves them for about 40 days, and he gathers a group of them. We think it would be about 100 people gathered with Jesus on a hillside, and here's how the story unfolds in Acts chapter 1. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the time or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, you have to get this whole picture here. We're not exactly sure if the people understood all that he was saying, but their question, first thing, but their question, Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom of Israel? The first thing you need to understand is that's a location question, not a movement question. Make sure you get that. That's very key. This is not a movement question. What they're saying is, Lord, is it at this time where you're going to reestablish our country? Is it at this time that you're going to reestablish us as a people? Is this the time where we're going to boot Rome out and we're going to have our own nation, our own country back? I mean, our own place where we set up shop the way that we want it done? Where we get to do what we want to do, we get to worship the way we want to worship? So it's a location question. It's not a movement question. Is this the time where we finally get to say, this is our place? And of course, Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. But he said, I am going to give you power. Now, if you're them, not sure what they're thinking, but you just got a no answer. Are you going to save your kingdom now? No, but I'll give you power. And you kind of go, oh, well, power's good. I'll take power. I mean, who doesn't want power? I mean, who of us, don't raise your hands, who of us wouldn't like to have power over the people around us? Okay, I'll raise my hand. All right. I mean, bottom line is, I'll give you power. I like it. Power over people. Not quite. Well, power for what then? Jesus said, I'm going to give you power, and I'm going to give you power actually to tell a story. I'm going to give you the ability, even if you're a horrible storyteller. Do you ever talk to someone who's a horrible, horrible storyteller? I mean, you're sitting there, and like a minute in, you're going, oh, just shoot me. Get this story done. <laughs> okay. He says, even if you're one of those people, I'm going to give you a power that allows you to live your life differently and allows you to tell a story, but to tell a story about me in such a way that it has power that when you tell the story, people, their heads will go, what? Their hearts will go, what? When you tell the story, I'm going to give you that kind of power. And then he says this, and you're going to take that power and you're going to take that story and you're going to go tell that story in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, we don't know, again, exactly what they're thinking. There's about 100 of them on the hillside. And Jesus said, you're going to, you are witnesses. Now, don't forget, it's a key theme. You are witnesses. You've seen me. 
You've seen me dead. You've seen me alive. You saw me crucified. You see me here right now. And now I'm telling you, you stay here and I'm going to send you power that you can go tell this story in Jerusalem. And they would go, yeah, we can do that. Jerusalem. I mean, we live in Jerusalem. We can do that. And in Judea. Okay, yeah, I mean, a bunch of us, we live in, you know, some of us live not in Jerusalem, but live out in the Judea region. Yeah, we can do the Judea. And Samaria. Ooh, we don't like Samaria. Now, we don't, uh, we don't go to Samaria. I mean, nobody lives in Samaria. We don't do anything with Samaria. And ends of the earth. Ooh, ends of the earth. The only, just so you know, the only ends of the earth thing they knew would be the Roman Empire, which means the very people that they despise, they're being told they're going to go take this story to the Roman Empire. So out of the four, they only got two that they would probably agree to. Jerusalem, sure. Judea, okay. Samaria, absolutely not. R- Roman world as we know it, no way. Now, make sure you get this. Um, despite all the questions that they might have had, and from everything we know, those two, I mean, Samaria and, and uh, the uttermost parts of the world, are the two things where they couldn't possibly have grasped it and they certainly, apart from God's spirit, not, you know, working in life, wouldn't have said, absolutely. Who wants to go to Samaria? Everybody raise your hand and everyone raise their hand. That, that, that wasn't how it would go. But it's interesting, despite all the questions that they would have had, that's exactly what they did. It's exactly what they did. They took that story to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and every part of the world. And this is one of the most significant prophecies that you have to hear today because we are here today as a part of the fulfillment of that prophecy. Do you get that? You are here today because of that moment when he said to them, you're going to take this message all around the world. You're here because of that prophetic word and because of that movement. That's why you're here today. Because those people said, we don't understand it, but okay. And so they took the story. So then Jesus leaves them. He goes into heaven. He told them, don't leave yet. Stay here till the power comes. So they're hanging out for about 10 days. What are they doing? Best we can tell, they're just hanging out together. They pray together. They eat together. They probably tell the story again. I mean, wouldn't you be telling the story of the resurrection over and over and over again? Like this is an incredible thing. That's what they did. About two weeks later, 10, 14 days later, it happened. It was time of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost today means in our heads the birth of the church. But in that day, Pentecost was a celebration that the Jewish people celebrated of the early wheat harvest. This was a celebration saying, thank you, God, for your bounty. Thank you for uh, how you provide for us. So all sorts of Jews would come into Jerusalem specifically to worship and thank God for this celebration of Pentecost. Now, they're all together in one spot, one place, when the Holy Spirit comes with power and empowers them. And things were different. This is a different power they anticipated. Now, please know, they're thinking they get power and they're not exactly sure what that means, but we can only guess that their thought process is they'd be powerful people. Like we think, all of a sudden, they're empowered and it's totally different. And one of the signs that the Holy Spirit is working in their lives and these followers of Jesus were suddenly they were able to speak in different languages, multiple different tongues, the gift of tongues as you've heard it uh, read in Scripture. Now, please remember this. Jerusalem at this point is filled with Jews from all over the world. I mean, all over the, all these multiple countries are filled with Jewish people who are there because of the celebration of, of Pentecost. So they're there, and in the middle of all of this, they hear these, this group of 
followers of Jesus who were all from Galilee. In fact, we're going to read a text here in a second called Galileans. All these people from Galilee, the only language they would know would be Hebrew. They would only know to speak in Hebrew. And yet these people from all these different countries are saying, what is going on that all of these people are telling us a story and they're telling us in our multiple languages? Let's read it. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much to drink. So here's the moment. The Holy Spirit comes, and it's incredible. And what's the reaction of some? Well, you've got to explain things away, and so the only answer is, you've been drinking. And the answer to that back is, no, that's not it. In fact, it's not drinking and it's not babbling. This made sense. You see, they tried to explain it, but what they couldn't figure out is if it was just drunkenness, it wouldn't make sense, but it makes perfectly good sense. They're actually hearing the story of Jesus. They're actually hearing the story of the gospel, and they're hearing it in a language they understand. It's not babbling. It's not gibberish. They understood it clearly. And it's the same story. All these different Galileans are telling the exact same story with one small change, and that is this. It's the story of Jesus. The small change is how it affected them personally. So they're telling their story of Jesus. Jesus changed them. Now, be sure you get this. The significance of that moment has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. See, everybody wants to go to the passage and go, ooh, tongues is the key. That is not the key. The issue of the story is the significance is not the tongues. The the significance is not the language or the languages. The significance of that moment is this story was not for a group of people. It was for the people. The message of the gospel was not for the Jews. It was not for a particular nation. The message of the gospel was this. It was a message for all of the people. It was a growing movement, a national, a multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural movement of people, just the way Jesus said it would be. Think about it. People of every walk and race are hearing the story for the first time and getting ready to be released as part of this movement. So all of the people, thousands of people, are trying to figure out what's happening. They go, we don't understand. So Peter stands up and begins to preach. We're not going to give you the whole sermon, but little pieces. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter gets up. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. 
Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. And this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, stop right real quickly. When he talks about Jesus, everyone knew who Jesus was, and everyone would have known what had happened. This is about, this is about 60 days, about three, you know, two months since the resurrection of Christ. Everyone knew the story of Jesus and what had happened. Everyone. So this is not a case where they're going, uh, who are you referring to? Everyone would have had that reference point. And then Peter tells them this. Again, he says in verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And now Peter gets real personal with him. And he adds some things in. God raised, verse 32, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he was received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. And therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, there's the personal part, who you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. But he says this, he says, but we are all witnesses. See, we've seen all this. What he's saying to them is key. These first followers of Jesus were not teaching what Jesus taught. This is a very, a very critical piece to understand about the church. Christianity was not and is not about embracing some teaching. You see, if Jesus dies and stays dead, we all carry on with the teachings of Jesus. Nope doesn't work that way. You see, the church is always based not on the teachings of Jesus. It's based upon Jesus. It's based upon the fact that he is the Messiah. He is the son of God. He's the one who came. If he doesn't come back from the dead, then there is no teaching to carry on because everything he said was centered upon the fact that he was the son of God. So Christianity is not about embracing a teaching. Christianity from the very beginning is about embracing an event and a person. It's about embracing Jesus Christ as Savior of the world and Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. And Peter says this. See, we are witnesses, he said. You see, he was crucified. We saw it. We were there. He was dead. We saw it. We embalmed him. We wrapped him in the grave clothes. We know it. He rose from the dead. We have seen him. And what you now see, he's telling the people, and what you're seeing right now is the result of him being alive. What you're seeing right now is the result of his Holy Spirit being in us. What you're seeing is the result of our story being true. And I said, he got personal with him and he said, this Jesus who you crucified. God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah. Now catch this. And when the truth of what Peter was saying began to sink into their hearts that it was actually true. Um, these people in pain began to say to Peter, what do we do? I mean, it's almost like this. Is it too late? I mean, you're telling us what happened. You're telling us who Jesus is, that we crucified him. Is it too late? And of course, listen, I don't care where you're at in your life. It's never too late. Why? Because he's not dead. 
See, it's not too late because Jesus is alive. He's not still in the grave. And so they say to Peter, what do we do? Now, don't forget, folks, this is opening day of the church. No fighting, no debating about whether there's a cross behind the screen or what style of music or, or any of those things that we tend to get kind of caught up in. The people are simply saying to Peter, what do we do? Peter's answer, he says this. He goes, well, first thing, attend church regularly. See, thanks for laughing, whoever did. See, that was supposed to be a joke. Yeah, you know, it didn't work first service either, but I thought for sure second, I thought for sure second service is a sharper group. Um, Peter didn't say attend church regularly. That's what we would say today. That would be us. What did Peter really say? Here he goes, verse 38. Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. So let's break this down as we kind of wrap up here. This promise, he says, is for you and it's for your children and for all who are far off. You do know who all the far off people are, right? It's you, it's us. We're the far off. I mean, we're the ones who are the far-off people. 3,000 people said yes to Jesus that day. 3,000 heard the message and said yes and were baptized. And that's a lot of baptisms, let me tell you right now. And they're not sitting on, this, on the riverbank. This is happening in Jerusalem. So just imagine 3,000 people, every pothole, pond, lake, body of water, pool, everything that's available is being used to baptize 3,000 people. Now catch this, right from the very beginning, the church was big. It was a big church, it was a big day. Big momentum, big message, big event, big beginning. Now I know that some people don't like big churches. You know, and I honestly, I can say, if you don't like big churches, I kind of understand that. But you really wouldn't have liked being there at the birth of the church then. Because it was big. Everything about it was big. And if that's the case, you're really not gonna like heaven at all because heaven's really big. And you need to know there's a lot of people in heaven. It's big. So if you really don't like big, you just got to get, get, deal with that now so that heaven is a better place for you. Now, the point is this. Opening day of the church was big, dynamic, and powerful. Thousands of people were embracing the message of Jesus. And the message of Jesus actually transformed a culture. Up until things went south for the church at that 300-year mark, roughly, up to that point, think about this, the whole Roman Empire went from pagan to Christian. I do not apologize by saying I want to be a part of that kind of church. A church that's big, dynamic, powerful, with a message that is life-changing and cultural changing. Long before the shooting this past week, this series had been in place. And I say to you again, the hope of this world is the story of Jesus. The hope of this world is a story of Jesus and a church that will embrace the mission 
That's the hope. I want that kind of church. I want to be a part of that kind of church. Oh, I hope you do as well. Now, let's finish up. I admit, we confess together, people have not gotten church right. We get it wrong. We get our focus on the wrong things. We see the wrong things. We, we, we begin to, to spiritualize the wrong things. We make crosses on walls, the issue, and it's not. I know there's some bad church history. But even in the worst of the different ages of church history, there has always been a group of people, a remnant, who got it right. Even when the church was in its darkest moment in general, if you go back and look, you'll see people, people along the way who said, William Tyndale's, who said, I'm going to translate the Bible. People who said, I'm going to be a missionary. I'll be a Bible translator. I'll smuggle Bibles in. I will feed the poor and the hungry and I'll care for them as Jesus has cared for me. People like some of you who will say, I will choose to live my life differently because this story is compelling and Jesus Christ has changed my life. I don't care about the worship style. I don't care about the the place. I don't care about any part of it. I mean, goodness knows there's many times where I said, Lord, you could do us all a favor. You just burn every church building down. Now, if that happened, unfortunately, in our Christian world today, give it five minutes and there would be a conspiracy theorist blog on some place saying there's some evil at work. And I would say, maybe it's God saying, let's get the church off of the wrong focus and back into the game of being a movement of people have a story to tell, the story of a changed life. I hope, I hope that you see the church, and my hope is by the time we get done, you don't see the church as a location, you don't see the church as some ingrown peas where it's all about what we want or what we see or what we feel that makes us comfortable, but you see the church as a movement, a group of people telling the story, the story of how Jesus has changed their life. The church is far more than a building. Stand, please. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us for the times that we do get confused as to what your church is. Uh, admittedly, this idea of movement, we're going to have to think about it. We're going to talk about this in the weeks to come because you know, things kind of work against that idea today. And especially in a big world like this, we, we look at the, the church changing culture, you know, 2,000 years ago, and we're not sure that can happen today. It can. And we are called to be a part of that movement, followers of Christ. So forgive us, challenge us, and move us forward. May your church be that dynamic and powerful place. By place, I'm not talking about this room. I'm talking about the place that we occupy every time one of your followers begins to tell the story. There, the church is present. Help us to get that picture. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of your church. Dismiss us in your grace, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.